0: Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, "Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb?" But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples, and Peter He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see Him, just as He told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, welcome again, and good morning, and happy Easter. It's wonderful to be in worship with you. Um, and kids, it's great to have you uh, here during the sermon. Uh, we've given you some colors and some uh, crayons and some paper so that you can stay awake. But thanks for being here and being patient. Uh, if you are new here, we've been going through a series during the season of Lent. And we've been looking at the spectrum of human needs, our wants, our vacancies, these things in our life that we want to, to fill some way. And we've been looking at how we go about filling them, and then looking at those ways, those needs, those vacancies through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Lent, the season in which we give up something to have more. This morning is the end of uh, of Lent and the beginning of Easter. We have one more sermon in this series, I Have Needs, and this morning we're going to look at the need for new life. Now, maybe you kind of like your life. Maybe you're not here this morning looking for a new life. Maybe there's no pressing need for a new one. But don't we daydream sometimes about not going to work? Don't we daydream about not having to do the dishes one more time today? Don't we daydream about hearing kind words and generosity flowing between our children rather than strife and conflict? Or maybe you just find yourself daydreaming about what-ifs. What if I'd made a different choice in that particular situation? What if I'd study harder when I was in school? What if I said exactly what I wanted to say in every situation? Many of us are here this morning because Portland offered us something. It offered us a new way of life, a new start, a new beginning. And unless you've been dragged here this morning, and I don't rule that out, aren't you here looking for something? Aren't you here looking for transcendence, for comfort, for security, for beauty, for hope, something that will change you, something that will make your life different? We do, in fact, want our lives to be different. And what Easter tells us is that new life is yours for the taking, That God has intruded into our world with a love that's so invigorating and so creative that encountering it will inevitably change you. In fact, it will change you so much that the words that the Bible talks about, that change in are is exactly that, a new life. Easter tells us that though we may kill God's love, that we can't keep it dead and buried. Because you see, Jesus is risen, not just in the deep recesses of human history, but He has risen for you. He has risen to give you new life. Well, that's all I had to say this morning. That's the sermon. That's pretty much it. No, I'm sorry. I can't do that. I get, I get paid by the minute. So, let's look briefly at what Mark has to tell us about resurrection, and let me pray for us one more time. Father, your church believes that Easter is the propulsive, decisive event in the life of the church, and your disciples, your followers for 2,000 years have lived resolute in their belief that death could not hold you down, that the grave could not conquer your love. But today, even some of us who are followers find it sometimes difficult to understand why it matters, why it matters in our day-to-day life. Others may be wrestling this morning with the the historicity of the resurrection, whether it actually happened. Maybe it's not historical fact, but more of an inspiring metaphor of sorts. And every Easter, the church swells with those who have been invited, those who feel obligated to be here, maybe because of some religious hangover. Or maybe we're here out of mere curiosity, or we couldn't think of anywhere better to be this morning. What binds us all together is that we're human. That we're human beings living stories that at time times are confusing, perplexing, baffling, painful. And we are heading towards a future that's uncertain and full of challenges that sometimes feel overwhelming. Lord, would you meet us in our journey this morning? Whatever we are searching for, whatever our hopes are for being here this morning, would you meet them? Would you transform them? Would you redirect them in such a way that your love, which couldn't be killed and held down, would find purchase in our lives? Bless us, Jesus, with your presence today and into eternity. Amen. I started by telling you that new life is yours for the taking. But did you catch the ending of the passage? They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I don't know about you, but I've got enough fear in my life. (laughs) I've got enough anxiety in my life. If that's the sort of new life that Jesus is offering, maybe we're not interested. That's not the kind of change I'm looking for. And it seems that many people reading the Gospel of Mark didn't like the ending all that much either because they decided to add on a few verses at the end. And if you're reading the passage in, the, in a Bible rather than in the bulletin, you'll see a little notation there at the end of our passage, and it says that the rest of the book isn't in the oldest manuscripts, interpretation meaning that Mark probably didn't write the rest of it, but it was probably tacked on to make things a little bit more orderly and a little bit more tidy, to add on a, a better ending, or so it would seem. Or so it would be thought. Come on, Mark. You can't end your book that way. You can't say that they were afraid and then fade to black. Maybe those who amended the ending were a little presumptive in that choice, but don't we understand their concerns? Don't we have real-world questions that we want answers for? Don't we want to be told how does the resurrection apply to this particular issue? How am I going to find a place to rent that fits my budget and my lifestyle? How am I going to pay for this unexpected medical expense? How are we going to get our kids into college? Well, shoot, forget that. How are we going to get them into preschool? They have waiting lists for preschool now. These two Marys and Salome go to the tomb, and they have very practical concerns as well. They're asking very practical questions. One of the questions is, well, who's going to roll away the stone? We're all this way. (laughs) How are we going to get into the tomb to anoint Jesus with the spices? But beyond that, what are they doing with spices to begin with? These spices were used to anoint a body immediately after death. Now it's probably 36 hours later. The spices are useless. It's just a little bit too late. They don't get straightforward answers but it also seems that maybe they're not asking the most appropriate questions they're still in a state of utter confusion maybe even shock their friend their teacher their rabbi the supposed messiah has been brutally murdered right before their eyes and they're not thinking clearly and maybe you and i wouldn't either if we were in that situation The only reason that they could possibly be heading to that tomb right now at that point is out of desperate devotion. They're trying to wrestle victory from the jaws of defeat, but they're confused, they're frightened, they're anxious, and then what they see at the tomb makes them even more so. It makes them afraid. It's an unsatisfying ending. Maybe Mark's not that good of a writer. <laughs> maybe he just kind of ran out of time. Maybe he just said, well, that's it. And he needs an editor to tell him, you know, Mark, you've got some really good stuff in here. I see where you're going, but you can't end it like that. I can't sell that. You've got to come up with a better ending. Or maybe he's doing something very sophisticated. Sophisticated. Maybe he's giving us something that requires the reader's response in a way that's very revolutionary. Maybe Mark isn't just telling us about events, but he's inviting us into them. Maybe if in, instead of an editor, we should assume the role of a, the participant in the story. What would we do if we were these women if we were to write ourselves into the narrative, would we conquer our fear and press on and run and go tell the other disciples what we had seen? Would we conquer our fear and go and meet Jesus in Galilee? Or would we just hang around the tomb, the tomb of our predictable habits? Would we just hover at the grave, the grave of our, un, our very comfortable thoughts? Would we say, isn't that a heartwarming, heartwarming, inspirational story? And go right back to our present lives. Though we're not necessarily completely satisfied with them, they're what we know. They're comfortable. Well, friends, that, that really is the question, isn't it? That's where we're left. And I believe Mark is inviting us to ask that question. That he's inviting us to participate in this story. In a sense, he's inviting us to complete it, to complete the rest of this gospel, not in the sense of adding more written words, but living a life in response to it. Because Mark and none of the other gospel writers lay out a point-by-point proof of the resurrection. They simply proclaim it as fact. Mark doesn't give us proof. He doesn't give us the theological meaning behind the resurrection. He doesn't give us even a clear application. He simply says, He is not here. He is risen. Doesn't that leave us in exactly the same place of these women? Mark leaves us with two pieces of non-evidence. He leaves us with a message delivered to these women who fail to pass it on. And even if they did, it would be inadmissible as evidence because why? Because they were women and they were not allowed to give testimony. It had to be of two males in that culture. And as an aside, if someone was trying to sell a story, it wouldn't be through women. It would be through the rich and powerful. It would be through males. And if the church was trying to consolidate its power a few hundred years later, they could have picked much better witnesses than scared, emotional women. In that day, that would have been a joke. Two pieces of non-evidence. The testimony of women and a promise to the disciples that they will see Jesus in Galilee. These two things are hanging in midair at the end of the book. What could Mark's purpose be? Well, maybe he didn't have to give us further instruction because we have the whole rest of the New Testament to do that. But that wasn't written yet. He didn't have that. He didn't know how that was going to come and be unfolded. So his ending must relate to something within his gospel rather than something that comes after. Throughout Mark's gospel, he's been narrating these episodes where God's power has come in very direct and miraculous ways. He tells us in chapter 2 that Jesus commands this paralyzed man to get up and walk. It seemed impossible But nevertheless, the man responds, and he gets up and walks. In chapter 3, Jesus tells us of a man with a shriveled hand to stretch it out. Impossible. But the man responds, and he stretches out his hand, restored. Here he tells these women, and by extension, the disciples and Peter, to meet him in Galilee. Impossible. Impossible, they're paralyzed by fear, they're cowering, they're afraid, they're running away. Is this an unsatisfying ending or is it an invitation? Isn't Mark inviting us to take a step of faith to consider how the resurrection might bring change into that relationship that now feels impossible to us? How Jesus' love that refuses to be held down might bring new life to the places that feel like dead ends in your life? If you had a Bible, you could turn back to chapter 1 in the opening verses of Mark. You know what he says to open his book? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the news the beginning of the good news about Jesus. There is indeed more to be written. He is not here. He is risen. What are you going to do now? What are you prepared to do? The resurrection is about finding life where you expect death, finding courage where you expect fear, finding forgiveness where you expect condemnation. But wait a minute, you say, that's not what happened to these women. They're afraid. Well, though Mark was probably the, the first gospel written, it was still written after these events. He was writing down these events to present day readers to try and explain what happened. Do you think he would have written it this way if the women had stayed paralyzed in fear? Do you think he would have ended it this way if Jesus' disciples didn't ultimately overcome their fear and go and meet Jesus? Early American patriots didn't tell stories like the revolutionaries were so fed up with King George and his taxes that they were good and ready to throw his tea into Boston Harbor, but they didn't. Civil rights leaders were so incensed over Jim Crow and segregation that they were prepared to march and engage in civil disobedience. But they didn't. Revolutionaries don't write documents like that. And Mark is a revolutionary document. You could get killed for copying it. You could get killed and martyred for believing it and passing it along. There's no way that he ends his gospel with, they were afraid, If, in fact, those women did cave to their fear and run back home with their tails between their legs. There's no way if the disciples didn't find courage in the resurrection to then go forth and meet Jesus again. No, he's encouraging his then present day readers that even these women were afraid. Even those closest to Jesus didn't grasp the meaning of the resurrection at first. Even his closest allies were terrified and so be comforted. The empty tomb startled them, and they trembled. But you know, any true life change is always scary. Opening yourself up to something new is always terrifying. They trembled. They were bewildered. But upon reflection, it changed them. It gave them a new life. It made the impossible possible. He's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. You see, friends, the resurrection doesn't work in the abstract, it's not a theological construct, it's not a theory, it's not a metaphor. It's an invitation to be personally involved in something revolutionary. Jesus, you see, in those miracles, provided the power. He gave the calling. He gave the instructions. But the man had to stand up. The man had to stretch out his hand. And these disciples, these women, Peter, you and I have to get up and walk. We have to go to Galilee if the resurrection is going to mean anything specific to you personally. If you want to follow Jesus, you see, you have to go where he leads. If you want to encounter Jesus, you don't simply believe in the resurrection, but you follow where it leads. In this case, the women are confronted with the resurrection, but it doesn't stop there. You see, they're invited into something in light of it. They're invited to follow him into Galilee. And you are too. And if you go to to Galilee, what do you find there? If you follow Jesus into Galilee, what do you find there? What is Jesus like? The angel tells these women, go and tell the disciples and Peter and Peter. Why is Peter mentioned? It's not just because he was probably by that point the de facto leader of the church by the time Mark was writing this, but it's because he's the church's most infamous failure. None of these people has any right to claim to be Jesus' disciples. They're all fearful, confused, lacking dedication, scared, running in all directions, Is that what discipleship looks like? No. They've all failed their Lord. Their revolutionary bona fides are in doubt. They've been ashamed of Jesus when He needed them most. But instead of being ashamed of those who have been ashamed of Him, He calls them to begin again. He calls them to meet Him. He's going before you into Galilee. Galilee. This isn't just that He'll get there first. This isn't just that He precedes you in the Galilee. This isn't just a future rendezvous. This is Him going forward to receive them. This is Him going forward to recommission them after their incredible failure. And you know, Peter isn't just cowering in fear, but he's likely sitting in a dark room somewhere covered in utter shame in utter disgrace in utter embarrassment how could I have denied Jesus when he needed me so badly he wants life to be different but it probably seems impossible go tell the disciples and Peter he is not here he is risen would you go Would you go if you were these women? If you were Peter, would you go after failing so magnificently? You see, meeting him in Galilee would make you painfully, nakedly aware of your failure and of your sin. But what do you find when you go there? You find Jesus with this gigantic smile on his face saying, Peter, welcome home, I love you. He would be painfully and nakedly aware of his inability, of his sin, of his failure, but he would now be viscerally aware of Jesus' unwavering love and his unwavering commitment to Peter, his love that can't be extinguished by failure, his love that can't be extinguished even by death. It may be scary to go. It may be painful to go. But it's in Galilee where Peter can learn that wherever he may find himself, whatever his sin patterns have been, however gigantically he might fail, his life is constantly being opened up to the creative, revolutionary grace of God. That though he may fail Jesus, Jesus will never fail him. And you and I are invited this morning to take all of our failures, to take all of our questions, our doubts, our incompleteness, all of the impossibilities of our life and carry them to Jesus in Galilee. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we Think about our own lives. We are confronted with many things that feel desperately impossible. And maybe there is conflict between us and someone else in this room, and it feels desperately impossible. We're sick, we're jobless, maybe homeless, maybe hungry, and life feels impossible. Father, wherever we're coming from this morning, whatever our worldview is, however we think about you. Would you encourage us? Would you give us the courage to open ourselves up to your creative grace? Would you take a step? Would you let us take a step forward towards you? Though it may be painful, would you open us up to your love and let us find your gigantic smile again? Lord, we pray that you would do this for each of us. We pray that you would do this for us as a church. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.